I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I am your Scabby the Rat Wrangler. For the <laughs> and I'm Matt Bernico, uh, <laughs> a Pokemon trainer who exclusively uh, carries <laughs> Scabby the Rat, the Pokemon. We all know he's a Pokemon, right? We all know that Scabby's <laughs> a Pokemon. I think that's true. Yeah, one of the biggest ones. A well-known fact. A uh, little-known fact, um, but boy, where would we be without him? Uh, this week, if you haven't already put it together, we are talking about unions once again. You can't stop us because we're organized together, standing up for ourselves. <laughs> we're talking with uh, Connor Lewis, who, among many other things, is on the editorial board at StrikeWave. An extremely cool publication. If you don't know what it is, um, check it out. It's thestrikewave.com. Um, you can get on a, a newsletter list, which I encourage you to do if you want to know anything at all about the labor movement. And Connor is here to tell us about that and also talk to us about uh, the relationship between the Catholic Church and labor and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, before we get there, Matt, um, can you hit me with a good housekeeping note? Yeah. Well, before we get to our housekeeping notes, let me get to the StrikeWave housekeeping notes. Okay. Um, you've already said some things about StrikeWave, and that's great. But I want to say some things, too, because this is ha half of this is my podcast, and I can do that legally speaking. That's true. So first of all, yes, subscribe to the StrikeWave newsletter. That's for sure something you should do. Uh, it's also completely donor-funded, so you can contribute money to them, which would be a very nice thing for you to do. But dang, if you want to know anything about the labor movement, you should start reading StrikeWave. It's so cool. Um, lots of very good reporting, lots of good editorials and opinions. Um, it's just like a really important uh, uh, labor publication that I think uh, more people need to know about. So we're going to talk to Connor. We're going to do this whole episode about it. And you're going to have to know about it or turn this podcast off. That's the only two <laughs> options you have right now. Um, okay, but now on to our, podca our, our podcast, Housekeeping Notes. Um, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Um, man, we appreciate everyone's uh, hard-earned cash so much. Um, it definitely makes this podcast a lot easier for us to do, knowing that um, people are contributing money to it, and um, you know we can pay for things like hosting, and uh, we can make new merch and spend a lot more time kind of researching, editing that whole kind of thing. Um, yeah. So, anyways, all that to say, we really appreciate you, our listeners. It's so nice of you to do the things that you do for us. Um, one thing that we've included in our Patreon that uh, is a bit new that I want to make sure everyone knows about is that we have a cool Discord channel. And listen, at first, I was like, a Discord channel? Does anyone want that? And I was skeptical. Um, but I'm converted. I've had a... My my heart is in a John Wesleyan kind of way, strangely warm to this Discord. I love it. <laughs> Everyone's in there. Um, the whole Magnificast crew is in the Discord. We're having great conversations about wrestling. We're having great conversations about moms. I'm just looking at it right now. Uh, people are talking about books and things they're reading and, and, and politics. Oh, my gosh. It's so great. And even their spiritual lives, believe that or not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if you're about this podcast, if you like it um, and you want more of it, but with other people, <laughs> you can get, <laughs> get on the Discord. If you give us uh, $2 or more, you can get uh, a hot invite to uh, the Magnificast Discord. All right. That's so much housekeeping. We've done we've done a lot of it here. Um, so now let's go to Connor and the rest of the episode.
Hi, Connor. Welcome to the show. It's really fun to have you on. We both follow you on Twitter. We follow your work at StrikeWave. It seems like you've got a lot going on, <laughs> like everyone else, but also in your own particular ways. Um, you're active in the labor movement. You're in grad school. You're a Catholic. For people who don't know who you are, uh, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Maybe tie some of those threads together. What are you about and what are you into? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I'm I, my day job, I guess, is uh, I'm a staffer for uh, an education union in Pennsylvania, um, which has been, as you can imagine, full time. It's always a full time job, but it's a full time job. And then some uh, since uh, since March, um, I, I kind of fell into this role, like you mentioned, uh, I, I'm still technically a graduate assistant or graduate student, and I'm working on my dissertation, um, which I might reference a little bit later. But I kind of got into unionism through graduate organizing at the University of Missouri. Uh, I was really involved in the wildcat strike there in uh, 2015. And then uh, later that year, uh, it's seems like a lifetime ago, but later that year, of course, there was the uh, hunger strike and the football strike in November 2015 that got a lot of national attention. I was involved in kind of some solidarity organizing for that. Um, I guess it was kind of a natural fit because I, I'm a labor historian for one. And two, you know, I, I kind of was led into organized labor a lot through Catholicism. I mean, I, I grew up Catholic. Uh, my dad taught at a seminary for about 20 years, uh, teaching church history. Uh, my uncle is a Jesuit and I, I went to a Jesuit school. So, um, I, I guess I come by it honestly a little bit, but, you know, Catholicism in a lot of meaningful ways kind of led me, um, led me down the path to getting involved in labor and, and you know, here I am. That's great. It's really cool to hear you connect all those dots uh, like that. I think <laughs> it contextualizes uh, your Twitter account a little bit more for me, and I appreciate it even more now. Um, <laughs> well, one of the places that you're really plugged into is a very neat labor publication called Strike Wave. Um, Strike Wave offers a lot of really thoughtful labor analysis and it has some like really important uh, like data visualization projects about OSHA and COVID, uh, COVID tracking. And it is a really... I think, invaluable publication for people who want to understand labor right now. Um, I think the worst thing about StrikeWave is that not enough people know about it. So um, would you give an elevator pitch for what StrikeWave is all about? Sure. I mean, StrikeWave was created by people in the movement, uh, members, staff, uh, uh, all of us, you know, on the younger end, uh, probably more on the militant end of the union, uh, union movement. And it's the idea is basically it's a way to get a perspective on labor that's not coming from the boss. It's not coming from, you know, business reporters. It's coming from people that know the movement or labor journalists that are committed to the movement and know how to cover it. I guess kind of the genesis of it was really in 2018. It had been kind of a, with some of the early editors, it had been a long standing frustration that we were tired of getting Politico labor roundups that were sponsored by boss associates like the restaurant or yeah, restaurant industry group and stuff like that. Um, and we just decided eventually, look, there's really a lot going on in labor that people don't know about. There's no one good way to get all of that news. And we decided to just kind of start a newsletter to start with. And it quickly kind of became a, a bigger project out of that. Um, we started publishing original content. And I think what really kind of turned it into what it is today is actually um, really publishing Kim Kelly. Uh, she had just gotten laid off at Vice, uh, and Brian Conlon had the idea of why don't we ask her to write about it and we'll pay her and we'll, we'll put together the money to pay her a really good fee. Uh, because, you know, one, she just got laid off and two, you know, we felt like it was really important to have her be able to tell the story of being laid off and how a union made a difference. And through that, we kind of realized, hey, this is actually an opportunity to give a platform for labor journalists to write something where they're going to be able to lay out their perspectives maybe a little bit more freely than they would for some other publications and to pay them good a good rate while doing it. So I think that was kind of like the moment where we started to see hey, we could really do something interesting with this that, especially given that around that time there were a, a wave of digital newsroom layoffs that could be helpful for a lot of people that 
could use a place to pitch stories. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, Kim Kelly, by the way, for people who don't know, is a really fantastic labor journalist to follow, still doing lots of cool stuff on that beat. Um, but that's exactly, I think, how I discovered Strikeway was trying to find uh, labor reporting that seemed like, okay, people are speaking a little more freely. And so you also get an opportunity to get a little bit more authenticity in the storytelling and and the you know cobbling together of, of stories and facts and interviews. Um, in light of that, Connor, you're uh, definitely one of our favorite follows, I think, on Twitter because you always seem to sort of know what's going on in the labor movement or... Um, you know, you follow it as a person who's participating in it. Um, we're at kind of a moment where union density is low and not many people are familiar with what's going on in unions, including uh, me in particular. <laughs> I'm always trying to figure that out myself. So if you could bring a, a union gospel to the masses, what would it be? What's happening in, in labor right now? What are some important things on the horizon? I mean, uh, the, the short answer is it's, I mean, it's really complicated to kind of tell what's going on in labor right now. Um, the movement is so huge, and this is something that I think a lot of a lot of people outside of labor and and in fairness, I think that labor doesn't do a good job of kind of explaining this to people that are outside of you know the movement, uh, the institutional movement. But the the movement is huge, and I mean, even just thinking of the uh, recent nomination of a labor secretary, you know, some unions wanted. Uh, Andy Levin, some unions wanted Marty Walsh. So there's a lot of diversity of opinion. But if I had to kind of pick out some interesting things that seem to be happening, I mean, really, prior to the pandemic, at least, the big thing was really, I think, the the education strikes in 2018. That was really, I think, to a lot of unionists, a, a shock. Looking back, maybe it shouldn't have been. But, you know, it was a shock, I think, to a lot of of us. And it was a really exciting, you know, upheaval in a good way in the movement, because here you have a lot of unionists in states that don't have uh, necessarily the the right to collectively bargain, uh, that don't even have the right to strike, uh, that are suddenly taking, you know, really radical militant action in a way that's starting to impact the movement movement overall. If you really want to get back to kind of the origins of kind of the the strike wave, you can really go back to the Chicago teachers strike in 2012, which was really kind of the first, one of the first strikes in decades that really took on, deliberately took on a big fight and actually won. Um, and I think that really the interesting thing that's come out of that, and I, I'm not going to claim it's a majority of the movement, uh, it certainly is impactful on the movement, you really have kind of a spirit of militancy um, in a way that you just really haven't in decades. And and also a sense of raised expectations and the belief that we can actually win those expectations. It's, it's not as much about trying to stop the decline or to protect what we have anymore. There's a sense that we can actually get things back or, you know, get things that we never had. I think that's such a great overview of... Uh of the situation. Um, I, I like what you said, though, not about uh, protecting what we have, but, uh, you know, about making sort of new strides that this actually works as a process. Um, maybe, uh, maybe you could talk for a minute, too, about um, a, a word that you just used in that explanation. You used the word unionist. And uh, probably a, a, a term that people don't, I don't know, <laughs> maybe people don't recognize uh, so readily, you know, we've got anarchists out here, we've got socialists, but unionists is maybe something a little bit different. So would you mind uh, just saying a little bit about what you what you mean by that sort of political identification? Sure. I mean, I, I think it's and I, I'll be entirely candid. I, I'm an Irish historian and using the term unionist is a little bit fraught. So if I'm talking to, you know, whenever, whenever I'm in Ireland, <laughs> I always say trade unionist. Um, but, you know, I think that the. There's an interesting book that I'm reading about uh, 1199, which as some context is an old a pharmacy local that eventually became an affiliate uh, of the Service Employees International Union, um, SEIU, and is kind of their healthcare division now, uh, for lack of a better term. And it was interesting, you know, that these oral accounts of people that identified strongly as unionists, and one account of, um, of a Protestant, um, I believe he was a Methodist, that identified uh, first with his faith, but second after that with his union. Um, and it really is, I think, 
in a way that a lot of other orientations aren't almost it's it's a political identity that probably comes closest among political identities to also being like a faith commitment uh if that makes any kind of sense um i don't think that you can necessarily say that unionism has any particular one political orientation uh because you know i i know a lot of people that would identify as unionists that have very different political views but i think that in a lot of ways it, it's a value statement more than it is necessarily a political statement in a way that um i i think that saying that you're a catholic you're a christian you're um you know, jewish muslim etc is is gesturing toward these kind of um values and beliefs and articles of faith um it, it you know i i'm, I'm not going to say that all unionists would explain it quite like that but you know I, it, it seems to make some sense to me that it's it's almost like a faith. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me anyway, I guess, uh, unsurprisingly, given the nature of this podcast. But I think it's a it's a helpful way of um, talking about it. Maybe you could say a little bit more, too, about how that kind of commitment, that commitment to uh, union organizing or trade union organizing, more specifically, how that informs the work that you're all doing at StrikeWave. I kind of pulled this away from there right away. But it's such a fascinating project, I think, because there's that uh, moment of commitment behind it. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how that uh, those commitments play into the kinds of um, reporting that you're looking for, the kinds of stories you're telling uh, in in a, a media environment where you know not everybody who covers the labor movement is a committed unionist? Yeah, you know, I, I think by way of explanation, I'm going to take like a little. Hopefully, I'm I'm able to kind of land this explanation, but I'm going to kind of take a sideways route to it. Um. You know, I, I I grew up in a union household, and um, my dad worked his way through college as a Western Union delivery man. He was a teamster, uh, and my grandfather was a shop steward uh, for the News Guild. Um, and you know, I'm I'm a labor historian, and these are all things that I kind of grew up around. Maybe not quite understanding fully what they meant, but you know, they they were things that were I could tell were important. Um, in a lot of ways really truly becoming committed at least for me becoming committed to the movement was a lot like a conversion experience and i i, I mentioned earlier the 2015 uh, wildcat strike at university of missouri and there really is a moment when i think about why i am where i am there is a specific moment that i can point to and we we pulled together the strike not knowing what we were doing and I, frankly i'm shocked we managed to pull it off but as part of our rally you know we, we had all these grads um over a thousand graduate uh, assistants that were out and there was a small contingent of support staff from the university that showed up we, we didn't ask them. We didn't even think to ask them. We didn't even know that there was a union for support staff. We didn't know the first thing about what we were doing. And this group of about a dozen laborers with picket signs showed up unasked for just because as a unionist, that's what you do. And I was in the middle of like trying to talk to this rally and I, I saw them and I started choking up and like in my brain, it kind of clicked that this is what unionism is that they showed up without being asked because that's what you do as a unionist. Um, and I think that that's really a value that we feel deeply in strike wave that we're committed to the movement. We're not committed to any particular union. We're not committed to the more arcane kind of like turf fights between different unions. We're committed to that kind of value. Um, and I think that that really kind of informs the way that we approach it because, you know, I, I think that for all of us, it's kind of a passion project. I, I usually hate that term, but it truly does apply here. And I think that realistically, this is a political commitment that all of us really do feel in our guts. And however we kind of express that or interpret it for ourselves, um, I think that's something that really comes across in just 
the work that we do and uh, hopefully, you know, comes across uh, to the freelancers that we work with. And we've worked with some really great freelancers that a lot of them have very, even if they're not union members themselves, have very similar commitments to the movement. So I think that's really um, what's different about us. And I, I even, you know, I, 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 we don't try to make any bones about the fact that we're a pro-union outlet. We're not trying to be and balanced or anything like that. Like we we have a we have a partisan perspective and we're not shy about it. We we defend that perspective very very strongly. Man, um, when you uh, when you explain the story of all these other staff worker union uh, staff worker union members showing up to to your rally, uh, it's hard not to see that as a religious conversion. <laughs> you know, just a a group of people miraculously appearing to uh, to support you. That's <laughs> that sounds like religion to me. Yeah. It felt um, like it. It truly did. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. We've talked about a lot of the very big picture ideas about strike wave, about unionism, and I think that's all really cool and pretty helpful so far. Um, but one temptation with all this excitement about labor unions is that we can ignore the very boring nuts and bolts stuff about labor organizing. And, uh, you know, that's a problem because the nuts and bolts are incredibly important. All the the very boring legal cases and like what the NLRB does and what card check means, all these things are uh, really important, though boring, because they kind of set the terms for how um, how unions actually work, you know, legally speaking. So um, I don't know, like, uh, when it comes to that boring stuff, what would you want people to know that they might not know about already? Like, what would what do you think um, you would tell someone about um, the nuts and bolts of labor organizing that like that they would be completely shocked by or uh, they just have no idea about? I think before, I mean, there are some nuts and bolts elements that are kind of fun and interesting to to talk about. Some of them are just boring. Um, you spend a lot of time looking at Excel spreadsheets, uh, more time than I ever would have guessed. <laughs> but I, I think the most basic thing that kind of surprises people is, and, and you know, tell me if I'm wrong, um, this has always been my perception that it's almost kind of daunting to people, the idea of like forming a union, it seems like a huge task. There are all these laws, there are federal agencies that get involved and it's, you know, it, it seems very arcane and it almost seems like, you know, union staff are kind of the guardians of like esoteric knowledge uh, that can kind of shepherd you through the process of creating your union. And I mean, I, I could be wrong, but that's the impression I, I feel I feel like that's the impression that a lot of uh, folks have. And realistically, it truly is as simple as working together. Um, I mean, I, I again, I, I kind of come back to the the Gospels and the the reference, uh, you know, the uh, I think it's in Matthew where uh, two or more are gathered in my name. And I actually do like explain to people that it's as simple as working together for a common purpose to improve your workplace and to make it more accountable to the people that work there. That's the nucleus of all of it. Everything else you'll figure out, you'll build later, but that's where everything starts as uh, in that kind of gathering of people to come together for a common purpose. Um, now, of course, like you mentioned, there's a whole lot of stuff on top of that. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of curious what uh, if there are anything uh, any specific areas that you guys uh, are are interested in, but I guess that the one part I'd share up top um, is just again I always go back to stories. But my, my first experience talking to like a real union organizer, I didn't have the first clue of what we were doing, and you know he he started asking us, okay, how many people are we talking about here? How many, how many workers, uh, what's the list? And over the course of the discussion, I was like, well, the employer is going to have to give us a list. Right. And he just kind of looked at me and <laughs> looking back, it was a really dumb question, but, um, but then he started kind of rattling off different ideas on how to get a list and told a story about how he had gone dumpster diving at like midnight in the twin cities because he was working on a hospital campaign. And the only way to get a list was to wait until 
they dumped the payroll records after they shredded them and literally tape it all back together. And that's how they got a list of the employees that they had to talk to. And I guess that's, you know, um, that was kind of a, a really kind of like eye-opening uh, story for me about like the amount of work and dedication and the things that you have to do to actually be able to organize a union and also how unfriendly the law is to actually doing so. Yeah, I think that's actually a really helpful um, way to start explaining some of that. Like, um, I don't know, I was in a position not so long ago um, where, I don't know, I was thinking about um, moving toward a union and like how I would organize and all this kind of stuff. And I remember just getting like very bogged down in like, well, how do you do that? How does the NLRB work? How do we have an election? And like, you know, all of that completely like um, <laughs> just like collapsed on top of me rather than the very obvious terms of like, well, here, get a list of people who you work with and talk to them. <laughs> um, so I think when you put it that way, that it's just like it's people gathering together and using sort of a collective power. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, my my feeling is always that and I and I say this because I was in that position of trying to figure out how this all works. And I remember the feeling of like being bogged down in how, how does any of this actually fit together? Um, but I, I think that, yeah, I mean, really just kind of boiling it back down to the basics of, you know, coming together, building collective power. I mean, there, there are some logistical things that I think are pretty intuitive when you really sit down and think about it. Like you need to know how many people and who you need to talk to to actually build that collective. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there are some nuts and bolts that go into it, but it's both more and less complicated than people think in a lot of ways. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I mean, the way that you've just been talking about it between sort of Excel spreadsheets and dumpster diving, you know, it's the 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 boring day to day stuff, but also the kind of romanticism of it. I think that's something that makes it um, exciting, uh, but also um, you know, with a sort of sober mind to to what unions actually have to deal with and the real barriers to uh, what they're up against. Um, you know, when we talked a long time ago with uh, this fantastic uh, union worker, Dree Zander, um, who's a lobbyist with uh, AFSME, just kind of learning a little bit more about what she does on this podcast a long time ago. And it struck me as such a wild thing that a union would employ a, a lobbyist, but also as kind of a, you know, well, of course, I guess, like, sure, someone should be <laughs> trying to pressure the government in the interests of, uh, of unions. And um, I think that was like a moment where I thought, wow, unions actually do kind of a lot of stuff, um, stuff that I probably would never have guessed. Um, and I think, you know, unions are big in the news right now. So it's things like socialism and, and these all these terms flying around. And I think that's really fantastic. Um, I think that also sort of brings a lot of different expectations about how how unions work and also how they relate to the political world that we're all trying to uh, sort out, especially this week. Um, what are some kind of assumptions maybe about unions and what they do and how they operate in all the complexities of our weird political environment that kind of grind your gears that maybe we could help clarify as people are finding their feet? Oh, boy. Political things about unions that grind my gears. Uh, <laughs> you you guys want to have me back on because I can go on for a while. Now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean... I think that the thing that a lot of people just maybe don't understand about unions uh, is that realistically unions reflect the working class in America. I mean, that's, and if you think about that for a second, that doesn't mean that they're all, you know, socialists or militants or, I mean, it's, they're complicated. They're complicated just like the American working class is. You have people that are members of unions and have, very bad politics. Um, you have people that are members of unions that have very good politics. I mean, it's it's not, it's hard to say that there's anything particularly uniform. I mean, I, I could say that I think that unions have a positive influence on the politics of their members, but, you know, that, that influence is really a result of unions really choosing to deliberate, uh, choosing deliberately to exercise it. So, I guess the big thing is I, I, I come back to, I'm, I'm not sure, it, again, it seems like a lifetime ago, but, but if you guys remember, um, there was that moment around the Nevada caucuses 
where there was a whole big dust up about labor and Bernie and Medicare for all. And it had to do with uh, culinary 226 kind of coming out. I don't want to say that they came out against uh, Medicare for all because I don't think that's really what they did, but they had concerns uh, and expressed them pretty vocally. Mm -hmm. And I think that the thing that really kind of frustrates me is even the perspective from some progressives uh, and the left toward unions and assuming that unions are going to automatically get on program uh, that and this kind of incomprehension when unions don't do that. And in the case of culinary 226, I mean, without getting into a whole thing about Taft Hartley and uh, multi-employer uh, healthcare trusts, they had some good reasons to have some concerns about the transition from Medicare for all. And there were reasons that the Sanders campaign really didn't address that well. So I, even as, you know, as a, as a socialist, as a unionist, um, I will defend till uh, till the day I die that Sanders was the union candidate. But at the same time, you got to convince people of that. And just because they're a member of the union doesn't mean that you have to convince them any less. Um, so I guess that's the thing that kind of crystallizes a lot of it for me is that union members are complicated and unions as institutions have spent a long time building an infrastructure to support working people because we don't have the kind of welfare state that a lot of other developed nations do. And it's a little bit hard, I think, sometimes for labor to trust that the government is um, necessarily the transition between the infrastructure that they've built and something more universal or socialized is necessarily going to be in their favor. So I think it's 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 a tough conversation to have. Um, but I also don't think that yelling at, you know, um, yelling at unionists that they're sellouts is going to help us have that conversation. Yeah, you know, there's a really great article um, that Mindy Eiser wrote for In These Times called The Union Members Who Voted for Trump Have to Be Organized, Not Ignored. I think kind of gets at some of what you're talking about, too, that um, that, uh, you know, you can't just sort of take uh, you can't take the politics of people in a union for granted. You have to kind of like win them over, especially when it comes to um, uh, unions that are, um, <laughs> I don't know, full of people who are less um, less progressive or who have uh, a different history of uh, voting. So anyways, I think that's a really good word, though, just to kind of explain that it's not all uh, cut and dry. Uh, left and right politics yeah. is really a lot of nuance. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, and I'm glad you brought up uh, Mindy's article because I think it's a really powerful uh, look at what union members really look like. And I'll, I'll say that, you know, um, I work with predominantly Republican union members. Uh, the majority of them are Republicans. A uh, significant portion of them would uh, identify as conservatives. And I think that, writing them off because of that doesn't take into account how complex those views really are once you start getting into them. Because I've spent a lot of time for years with these union members um, that I, I now at this point know very well. And you can have a conversation with them where they'll say that single payer would make their lives easier. I mean, without even really hedging or thinking about it, like, yeah, they can see how that would make their lives easier because it would make it easier to bargain a good contract. Um, these are people that have otherwise conservative views. So people are politically complicated. Um, and I think that the important part that kind of Mindy gets at is that unions actually provide us a really good space to engage them in those kinds of productive conversations that can help people move. Um, because, I mean, what's the alternative? I mean, what do you do if you don't believe that you can change people's minds? What do you do with that? It's so tough. Like, this is always the the big Leninist problem. I mean, not to uh, drive us immediately into the <laughs> the nuts and bolts of Leninism. But, um, you know, that's kind of the, the assumption is, look, uh, a, a complicated union is better than no union at all. And if you have something uh, that is genuinely in, in the interests of working people, then uh, shouldn't that be the kind of uh, venue in which to, you know, make that case and try to help people understand that um, this is in their interest, right? It's not the kind of thing that you just want to impose from the outside. So, um, you know, it's not just a Leninist problem, but I think every socialist sort of faces that that issue of uh, trying to navigate rather than just write off uh, 
unions that make decisions that you might not otherwise want to make. Yeah, yeah. And as usual, Lennon has some good thoughts on <laughs> on some very still pressing problems. Um, but yeah, I think that's exactly the right way to put it. I mean, they're complicated, they're messy. What are you going to do with that? I mean, you can't write them off. After the election, you co-authored a piece at StrikeWave about how the politics of union members are a lot more complicated than assuming, you know, the always reliable Democrats or progressives uh, in unions. That's, you know, kind of the big idea we were talking about. Um, But speaking of Lenin, coming back to that guy, Marxism is a really compelling way of looking at labor because it intentionally connects unions to political struggle. Um, the big question in the U.S. right now seems to be how to figure out like how how we can do that. Um, and you've given a, a lot of complication to that already. But I don't know. Like, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about that idea moving forward? How do we connect union struggles to bigger horizons for a better world? What is to be done, Connor? That's the big question. All right. <laughs> We're at that point of the podcast. All right. Um, you know, I, I, I'm glad you referenced that piece because I actually think it does if you look at it the right way, it shows the potential. And I think we we got a a little bit of flack for it because I I think it, on the one hand, it showed that a lot of self-identified Democrats and a lot of union members aren't necessarily as progressive as we would hope that they would be. But there was one part of it that was really, really interesting. Um, even though there wasn't a huge difference in more ideological questions, and, and this was a some survey data that had been pretty much unused, uh, that was actually collected in 2020, that actually you know identified union members and asked them some pretty complicated questions about their political views in a way that um, really I don't know of any other survey that's done that um, with a large enough sample to be statistically meaningful. But so you know I I worked with. Kevin Roining, by which I mean Kevin Roining, uh, he's a professor at um, Miami University. Uh, he did all the hard work of working with the data, and I just wrote things. Um, but I think that the really interesting part was, even though you can't identify significant differences between, like, for example, a Democrat that's a union member and a Democrat that's not a union member and how they view Medicare for all, there is a huge difference in the view of Medicare for all and other important issues between Republicans that are union members and Republicans that aren't union members. And that seems meaningful to show the potential to move people because even self-identified Republicans that for whatever reason, you know, identify as a Republican, but are also a union member also had significantly more progressive views than all other Republicans. And that, I think, shows the ability of, one, unions to move people from more reactionary politics, um, but two, also, it shows that maybe there's some potential to push kind of the left flank of union membership a little bit further if we try to do so intentionally. Um, I'll say that, you know, a lot of unions uh, with the exception of uh, National Nurses United, really haven't pushed the Medicare for all issue, uh, at least not in a positive way. So I think it shows, and there are some other data points, if you will, that kind of demonstrate this, but unions are very, very effective persuaders. And so I think that that actually showed that, yes, the politics are complicated and they're not necessarily what we'd like them to be, But it also shows that they could be what we would like them to be if we really, really intentionally try to do that kind of political education work. To me, that really kind of demonstrates that we can push those horizons farther and that unions are going to be a key part of doing that. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I really like the way that you put it, though, that it's um, it's a way to move people, that that unions are uh, persuasive. Um, I, I think that part can be often missed when people are thinking about, you know, what a union is and what it does, right? It's something that represents you at work for sure, but it's also, uh, has this political perspective that can, um, can, can move people, um, through the political spectrum towards a different spot, uh, given, you know, that the persuasion is done, right? I guess, um, I mean, it's such a. It seems like such an interesting point, though, because we're we're living in this time where um, we have, I think, uh, a really big moment of like right wing radicalization, 
Um, I don't know. Do you think that there is a, a part for unions to play in sort of the? Uh, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to use like any like stupid Bidenisms, but uh, can unions <laughs> help us heal the country? Is that what we can do here? Oh yeah, and you know, I I truly don't think that we can do it without them. I mean, when you look at the rise of reactionary politics, they had to fill a vacuum, um, and in a lot of ways, the vacuum that they filled was the decline of the unions. I mean. If you look at a lot of, um, and I'm just thinking about Pittsburgh or Allegheny County, you know, talk to a lot of older union members and they're going to say that the the center of their communities forever, you know, back when the steel industry was, uh, was still around, the centers of their community were the parish and the union hall. That was it. Um, and so I think that it's part of the hollowing out of society that unions are no longer there is kind of a a community that has meaning for a lot of people. And unfortunately, the reality that we know is that neoliberalism and, you know, the hollowing out of society, alternative explanations come rushing in. And usually those alternative explanations, those alternative, you know, spaces of belonging or community um, are often ones that are reactionary. And so I really don't think that we, not only would I say that unions can help heal the country. I I would say that we can't do it without them. I love that. Well, um, speaking of the Union Hall and the parish, that's a great transition to turn to the last bit of our conversation to talking a little bit more about what we're actually uh, good at talking about on this show, which is Christianity and the left. Um, you know, you've mentioned uh, your Catholicism a couple of times in our conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about how you put together your own faith tradition and your participation in the labor movement? Yeah, you know, I I guess I kind of like to think that, and I kind of mentioned this a little bit before, but I, I kind of like to think that Catholicism really kind of put me in a position to say yes when I was, you know, when I, when I had the moment to kind of organize in front of me. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of the values, especially in Catholicism, um, really align very powerfully with values that are emphasized by the union movement, uh, you know, thinking more about the community, about the collective, about solidarity. I mean, kind of uniquely among, not wholly uniquely, but I would say that solidarity is part of kind of the the language of Catholicism in a way that maybe is not always the case in uh, Christian uh, faith tradition. So I think that there's kind of a, a resonance between the two. Um, that is really kind of powerful uh, and that makes it really easy, I think, for me as a Catholic and maybe for other Catholics to kind of find a symmetry between the two, um, that the language is the same, that it's very similar. You know, I a good union meeting almost kind of feels like going to mass a little bit, um, which not all union meetings are good union meetings, but, you know, a good one really kind of feels, you feel the same kind of sense of, community and presence um, and um, meaning uh, that you might feel at, uh, at a religious service. So I, I think that really a lot of it was just that there was a lot of resonance between the two. And, and I think that Catholicism kind of introduced me to the idea of radicalism um, more than really even just kind of traditional politics. I mean, my, my first protest was, I think it was 2010, uh, was protest, or it was a vigil for martyrs uh, murdered by right-wing paramilitaries trained at the School of the Americas. Um, that was a thing that was run through the campus ministry at my uh, at my Jesuit uh, college. So Catholicism actually was an entry point into the left, which I think is probably not a typical trajectory for a lot of people, but I think it, it's, it makes sense as a trajectory, uh, depending on kind of what vein of Catholicism you're kind of uh, moving in. So I guess that for me, it's hard for me to separate Catholicism from unionism from, you know, radicalism. They they all fit together in my brain um, in a way that just makes sense to me, um, which isn't always incredibly easy, um, but it's, you know, there's a there's a productive tension there, I guess, sometimes between those different elements. Yeah, you know, that productive tension, I think, um, 
Well, I mean, you're not the first person to feel that way, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, as a labor historian, uh, you all and, and, you know, a unionist uh, through and through, you know a little bit more about that, the, the deeper relationship between the Catholic Church and uh, organized labor. Um, you know, the, the Catholic Church has recognized and even valorized the right to unionize since um, the very famous uh, 1891 encyclical Rerum Novarum. We have to mention it <laughs> at least one time per episode. Uh, the Pope makes us. Um, <laughs> although, uh, right-wing Catholics, uh, you know, they're not, uh, they don't seem too bothered by that whole thing. Uh, but it is a pretty cool claim, uh, a claim for, uh, you know, unionists in the church. So I guess, uh, what can we make of the Catholic church's teaching on unionism? So this is literally like the, the chapter of my dissertation I'm working on right now. Uh, it's, great, great. it's all about, uh, really, um, the site Rerum Navarum several times. Um, you know, I, I, it's a big topic, but I would say in a nutshell, you know, the, the Catholic church in a lot of ways has, for a long time knew that unions were important, but also didn't quite know what to do with them. And I think that the best way to kind of make that intelligible to folks is, uh, and actually you mentioned this on a episode that you did about Oscar Romero, kind of the, the political implications of unionism that may not necessarily um, jump out to Americans um, as being like a really, really stark political choice uh, to be involved in unions. Um, and that was much all that was at least in Europe and and also obviously in Latin America and other parts of the world, more so than the United States. That was always kind of the case that there was political implications to being involved in unions, especially, you know, I would say in the couple of decades after Rerum Novarum, and honestly, probably a big part of why Rerum Novarum was uh, was promulgated was you have socialist-influenced unions making headway in Catholic working-class communities, and the church kind of became aware, I guess. Um, they, they woke up to the reality of industrial society um, in a way that I don't want to say that it was solely kind of just to keep the socialists out, but I, there was a legitimate, I think, concern um, on the part of the church and definitely on the part of, you know, frontline, for lack of a better term, priests, that they needed to have answers for an industrial world that was clearly visiting violence upon working, uh, working uh, class communities. Um, they, they definitely weren't, um, they weren't unaware of that. And so I guess the tension for a long time was always between the radical kind of currents within labor and the church's obvious kind of distrust of that, which kind of came more to a head, um, with, uh, Quadrigis, uh, Quadrigisma Anno in, uh, 1931. Um, but I mean, as much as that's been the case, I would say that where we're at now is a social, a body of social teaching that is incredibly friendly to organized labor and is honestly incredibly friendly even to more militant kind of views on organized labor. Because, I mean, unlike Quadrigisimo Anno, we're not talking about balancing kind of the, the rights of capital and the rights of labor. We're talking about the rights of capital being subordinate to the common good. I mean, that's a totally um, that's a totally different conversation that I think shows that we're not talking about co-equal interests, that labor has a greater interest, um, in a lot of ways. Um, and I don't know that Catholics have really, whether through the church or as, as unionists have really kind of capitalized on the space created by that kind of social teaching. And a lot of it, you know, um, a lot of it is that, uh, the church's, the American church's uh, interests have uh, been elsewhere, I think, um, the past, you know, 40, uh, 40 or 50 years. But, um, you know, I, there's a lot of space there to really kind of very, very clearly point to Catholic social teaching is um, providing actually a really kind of radical approach in some ways to, to thinking about organized labor. Um, and, you know, I, I think that maybe that's something that a lot of Catholics 
a lot of Catholic unionists even just aren't really aware of. I think that's a good point. Um, Rerum Novarum is one thing for sure. And then even in Fratelli Tutti, I think that, uh, that I mean, Fratelli Tutti isn't about labor, you know, right out in the same way that Rerum Novarum is, but there is this whole overarching sense of um, solidarity and fraternity that I think there's a lot to do with um, when it comes to unionization. Um, one place I see this tension playing out um, that I'm sure you have a, a specific uh, advantage in speaking to, though, is at uh, the union efforts across the across the country in Jesuit universities. You know, there's, um, I, I don't know, I can't think of a school right now that probably doesn't have this problem <laughs> of um, of graduate students or tenure track faculty members who are trying to uh, form a union or trying to get their uh, university to bargain with them, but uh, who who are being rejected on terms of Catholic social teaching. I mean, I think it's a great example of just the, the tensions that are are lying there in, uh, you know, the church uh, as a big structure, but also in the way that it, um, yeah, its interests have uh, have wandered elsewhere. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not going to repeat the things I've said to the um, president of my undergrad um, regarding some <laughs> of their own approaches toward uh, their their employee unions. But, you know, there, there really is kind of like there, there's a church social teaching and the magisterium, I guess, on the one hand. But then you also have to grapple with the reality of the church is an institution that's present in the world. And I mean, um, even Aquinas was very clear. Um, I was just reading a rereading a quote of his about, and, and I'm not even going to try to paraphrase it, but to the effect of that, um, where the church may be God's church um, or Christ's church on uh, church on earth, but um, we're never going to make it what it should be uh, in the world. Um, it's it's flawed, just as we're flawed. Um, and so I think that we have to kind of grapple between what the magisterium says on the one hand, but then also grapple with the reality that the church is an institution. It runs colleges, it runs hospitals. Um, increasingly, a lot of those managers and um, presidents and CEOs are lay people rather than clergy that maybe have a slightly more tenuous connection to you know their their faith life. So I think that there's really kind of um, attention there and, you know, getting back very briefly to the nuts and bolts, um, the church has been part of an effort uh, by religious institutions in the United States to actually build in carve outs for the employees of religious institutions um, throughout the U.S. because, and this would be, I think, a surprise to um, a lot of Catholic, you know, primary and secondary school teachers, but as far as American labor law is concerned, if you're a biology teacher at a Catholic prep school, uh, you're a minister and you don't have the right to organize and you don't have a lot of other labor rights. Um, so, I mean, that's, I, I think, where you start getting into the practical tension uh, between what the magisterium and, you know, the church teaching says on the one hand um, and the reality, I think, of the church in the world. But, you know, if, I, I I personally come back to, and this is, it's nerdy, but it's, it's a, it's a, just a document that I love. Uh, it's a letter from, um, John Cardinal Newman to the Duke of Norfolk, um, about conscience. Um, and, uh, particularly there's, there's a line that I've always loved that he says that conscience is the Aboriginal vicar of Christ. Um, and, and you know, as Catholics, conscience is a huge part of how we believe God speaks to people. And to me, um, and this may be a little bit of a hot take, you know, the way I view it, if we believe that conscience speaks to all people, and if we believe that conscience is the voice of God, um, either shouting at us or maybe speaking softly, uh, and if we believe that the common good is important and that the rights of workers take primacy over the rights of capital, and we believe all these things uh, that the magisterium tells us are true, and yet we choose deliberately to turn away from that as unfortunately so many um, lay Catholics uh, and you know even even clergy do so when it comes to labor relations in the United States that that's a deliberate choice to turn away from God. Um, so I guess you know my 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 big hot take is that you know as far as I can see it union busting is a mortal sin uh, but you know I <laughs> 
I have a feeling I'm going to be waiting on finding a cardinal that's uh, willing to deny communion to attorneys from Ogletree Deacons or any other union busting firms. Yeah, well, it's a good take. It's a very good hot take. Um, <laughs> let us know if you do find that cardinal at some point. We'll definitely have him on the show for sure. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is wild. We could probably talk so much more about this. I've always wondered, you know, the uh, the U.S. government especially has a really hard time understanding religion for, you know, lots of reasons, some of them even good reasons. It's good that it doesn't always get it. <laughs> but um, when it comes to labor, it's always wild. Like a minister is not considered a worker, right? But that makes, especially Protestant pastors, extremely precarious sometimes, kind of uh, beholden to the whims of, you know, particular members of their congregations are really toxic situations and they have no uh, no legal labor ability to advocate for themselves. That's also a problem here in Canada. Um, I should make a very I'm, I'm sorry, I'm like derailing this conversation real quick, but a really short plug for this uh, union called Unifaith in Canada, which is a union of United Church clergy um, trying to sort of make a case that clergy are, are workers and laborers. They're they're under uh, the Unifor umbrella here in Canada. Anyway, extremely cool thing. Heard about that, and it's it looks really interesting. It is, yeah, because the whole premise, right, is um, pastors and other ministers are are precariously employed. So why shouldn't they be able to appeal on those grounds? Well, in any case, uh, getting away from that as we're closing up this uh, episode, I don't want to let you go, Connor, without giving you a chance to give us some plugs at the end. You're involved in lots of cool projects, Strike Wave and. Uh, and elsewhere, tell us where to find it all. Where do you want people to uh, go after listening to this episode? Sure. Um, you know, I'm I'm one of the editors for Strikewave, uh, which you can follow um, at at Strikewave on Twitter, and then also at www.thestrikewave.com. Uh, and I apologize in advance. Don't blame me for the things I tweet, but you can also follow me on Twitter at uh, the House Red T H E H O U S E R E D on Twitter as well. And like I said, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry for everything that I say. Um, but you know, Strike Wave is kind of the big project uh, that I'm involved in, and really kind of what what takes my time. But if you don't mind, I'll actually. Uh, there are two other things I kind of wanted to plug. Um, yeah, yeah, of course. I'm I'm can't claim any credit for, but I'm really excited for. Um, today, one of Strike Wave's editors, um, Brendan O'Connor, uh, actually had a book come out called um, Blood Red Line uh, about nativism, and you know, which I think really kind of powerfully speaks to our uh, political moment that's out from Haymarket as of today. Um, that I've been telling literally anyone that will listen uh, to buy that, and then. Um, the other one that I think would be really good, especially for people interested in labor that maybe aren't interested in reading about NLRB role making and that kind of thing. Um, Sarah Jaffe has a book that's coming out, I think next week, might be a week from today, uh, called, uh, work won't love you back. Um, which I think is, uh, I, I had the benefit of reading one of the chapters before it was published. And, you know, I think it's a really important conversation to have um about some of the ways in which capitalism kind of tries to um take the place of god in our lives in a lot of ways which i'm not sure is sarah's take on it but you know i think that uh i think that having that discussion about the emotional kind of energy we place in work um is a really interesting one especially from a faith perspective so um so i just wanted to throw those two plugs out yeah we appreciate it well um I'm actually really excited to read both of those books that you mentioned. So um, I'll put them I'll put them in the show notes, folks. You can get these good books um, from the link in the podcast show notes, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Buy other Connor... people's work. Don't listen to me. Buy other people's links. <laughs> um, it's really <laughs> been lovely to get to know you a bit more and have you on the show. I'm sure it won't be the last time. Uh, all the best to you and the Strike Wave crew. Keep that keep that wave a rolling. What's the what's the real um, terminology over there? Are people are you surfing the strike wave? Uh, you know, what's the the nomenclature? That's a good question. I'm going to have to actually, I might have to put this into a Slack thread and we'll have to hash it out. <laughs> but I, you know, I guess we're just going to keep surfing the strike wave as long as we can. 
Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon. I've already talked a lot about that, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore, but you should do it. <laughs> uh, you should also support StrikeLave, or at least go read it. That would be really nice of you. Uh, subscribe to their newsletter. It's fantastic. Our intro music, as always, is by Amari Armstrong, and our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind.